0: Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Since 1993, we've given 10% of our profits to efforts that help protect and restore the earth, from supporting organic farmers to funding glacier research education. Learn more at stonyfield.com. We're proud to support Living on Earth, and hope you will too. Donate at LOE.org.
1: From Public Radio International, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The UN Rio Plus 20 Summit is now history. Sustainable development was the goal of the mega conference, but without a new way forward, the earth could be history. Don't blame it on Rio.
2: It has to be a partnership between uh, governments making sure that the right rules are being set, non governmental organizations, which tend to have the most yeasty ideas and sense of the future and corporations, which are the most efficient institutions.
1: Coming up, recapping Rio Plus 20. Also the fastest creature on two wings, a falcon named Frightful.
3: We were able to take her higher up to uh, 17,000 feet, and at that point she clocked at 242 miles per hour. She never left my side. She was there the whole time.
1: Wait till you hear what happened next. We'll have those stories this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer
1: and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. It was 20 years ago this month that world leaders gathered at the UN Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. It was a landmark meeting that put sustainable development and environmental protection on the globe's agenda. Two international agreements resulted, one protecting the planet's biodiversity and a process to deal with climate change. 172 governments participated in that Rio summit and 108 heads of state attended, including then U.S. President George Herbert Walker Bush.
4: America's record on environmental protection is second to none. So I did not come here to apologize. We come to press on with deliberate purpose and forceful action In such action will demonstrate our continuing commitment to leadership and to international cooperation on the environment.
1: The U.S. would later sign the Kyoto Protocol, establishing binding targets for greenhouse gas emissions, but the treaty was never ratified by the Senate. Well, now two decades on from that first U.N. summit, nations have yet to come up with a new climate change treaty, and world leaders have once again convened in Brazil at Rio Plus 20. And while the music was upbeat in the country that gave us the samba, the outcome of the Sustainable Development Summit was more subdued. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom reports from Rio.
0: White sand beaches of the Atlantic Ocean border Rio on the east. To the west is a ring of green, cone-shaped mountains. Locals aren't humble about the beauty here. Rio's nickname is Cidade Marvelosa, the marvelous city. Some 50,000 people are here for this Rio Plus 20 Earth Summit. It's not one of the world climate talks. Instead, the goal was to make specific commitments on critical issues like sustainable fisheries and access to safe drinking water. Brazilian President Dilma Rousseff struck an upbeat tone as she greeted 120 heads of state.
2: As delegações, as representações das delegações aqui presentes.
5: The number of world leaders attending this session in Rio de Janeiro is a clear token of an unmistakable commitment to the very pressing issues of sustainable development. I have no doubt that we will live up to the challenges presented to us on a global scale.
0: But noticeably absent from the negotiations are President Obama and German Chancellor Angela Merkel. On the other hand, Chinese President Hu Jintao, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh of India, and Francois Hollande of France are here. The agreement coming out of this summit contains only vague language, like recognize and reaffirm, rather than will or can. There are no binding targets or goals.
1: The text negotiated
6: here falls far short of what it needed to be.
0: Jim Leap is Director General of World Wildlife Fund International. He says the document will allow delegates to claim success, though it does little to move the world towards sustainable development.
6: What you see is a lowest common denominator product that took on board every objection and did not find a way to galvanize the international action we need to see to accelerate progress towards sustainable
1: development.
0: Much of the world is too distracted by the euro crisis to make a strong showing here, says Manish Papna. He's acting president of the World Resources Institute. And he adds another reason for the inability to strike large, meaningful accords.
7: There are vested
8: interests that stand to gain from the status quo. And the type of process we have in place that requires unanimity, that everyone agrees, makes it incredibly difficult to make sufficient progress when the process is not necessarily designed to move forward ambitiously.
4: And the conference shall commence a general debate under agenda item 8.
0: While the main document negotiated may not be truly significant, this real meeting does give rare recognition and perhaps a boost of confidence for hundreds of local activists who organize in their home countries without access to reliable internet, electricity, or clean water. members of the Ashaninka tribe from the Amazon open a UN award ceremony for environmental leaders from 25 tropical countries. They've managed to bring sustainable economic development to their communities. A fashion show of Bangladeshi sarongs, Fijian flowered shirts, and Moroccan headscarves takes the stage. Celebrities, including Richard Branson and Edward Norton, presented the prize. Charles McNeil is Senior Policy Advisor for Environment and Energy at the United Nations Development Program.
9: We realized there was an unusual overlap of the richest biodiversity in the world, all the plants and animals in the equator belt, and yet that's also where the the greatest poverty was located. And we were beginning to see that some communities were able to transform that biological richness into economic development.
0: One winner, a Bedouin man from Egypt, organized a cooperative in which members grow medicinal plants they can sell. In Colombia, a women's group got fed up with the sight of plastic bags on their street and saw a way to make money. El primer paso que hay que hacer es reciclar las bolsas. And we take these plastic bags that have been collected in our community recycling campaigns and cut them into strips. And the artisans will then crochet these into these amazing tote bags that we call eco-mochilas. Before this project, many people in her region sold tamarind monkeys into the illegal pet trade as their source of income. Across town from the official Rio Plus 20 Earth Summit is the People Summit. Here, amid troubadours and fair trade booths, posters condemn high-emitting countries for their global carbon emissions. Those have doubled since the first Earth Summit here 20 years ago. Tipping the planet towards climate disruption. But there were a few concrete commitments made to sustainability. Development banks say they'll launch a $175 billion fund for sustainable transportation. And Norway pledged $140 million to replace kerosene lamps with solar energy in rural Africa. For living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom at the Rio Plus 20 Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil.
1: Our story from the Rio Summit was made possible with support from Internews and Earth Journalism Network. Well, expectations for the summit were low going in, but coming out... Timothy Wirth had a positive spin on events. The former U.S. senator from Colorado served in the Clinton administration as Undersecretary of Global Affairs and is now president of the U.N. Foundation, which was started with a billion-dollar grant from media mogul Ted Turner. The goal? To encourage other donors to support U.N. activities. Senator Wirth was at the 1992 Rio Summit, and he joined us from Rio Plus 20.
2: It's a very different world from then to now. 1992, I think most heads of state and finance ministers had just discovered the environment. Since Rio, people thought that maybe there would be implementation by itself. People thought that maybe uh, all of the agreements would suddenly turn into some kind of regulatory patterns. Well, they didn't. You know, the devil is in the details. The devil's in implementation. And so I think over the last 20 years, what we've learned is that implementation is going to come from the ground level up, not from the top down and largely with the engagement of the private sector.
1: Well, uh, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said of this conference, he said, we've got a a once-in-a-generation opportunity. So uh, did we make the most of it, or
2: did we blow it? Well, it depends on what uh, lens you're looking through. I think for those who were looking for an overall framework for the whole globe, uh, that did not occur. That already exists in Agenda 21 and elsewhere. Uh, for those who are looking for climate agreements or long term agreements on population, you know they are not part of this uh, discussion and this deliberation. Uh, if, however, you're looking for uh, what the secretary general calls the the golden thread of development and all social and economic activities energy, then this has been a huge success. We're obviously on an unsustainable course now in the developed world. Uh, the use of fossil fuel and the dumping of carbon garbage into the atmosphere cannot be continued. Uh, we're going to have to uh, shift and make the transition to uh, renewables, and we're going to have to use the energy that we have much more efficiently. And for the first time, the world has come together and really focused together on the issue of energy, access to energy for the poor, and uh, much more efficient use of energy for the developed world, and the transition to renewables for everybody.
1: Well, how does that happen? I mean, so far the model's been, you know, grow now, clean up later. H- how do we reverse that?
2: The grow now, clean up later model has really bankrupt. And I think people are now largely understanding that. Utilities are making the shift away from great dependence to, on coal to a transition for the short term to natural gas and a long term to renewables. Automobiles are becoming much, much more efficient. When I was uh, had my first car, it got about 8 miles to the gallon. You know, we're now moving to 50 miles per gallon. That is a great step in efficiency. These are all opportunities that we have to take advantage of right now. If we don't make all of these other steps, then we're going to so foul the atmosphere that we are end up boiling the earth, and we don't want to do that, obviously.
1: Well, what's the role of the United Nations then? Uh, we've had 20 the years role of experience. The the United
2: Nations is at its best as a norm setter. Uh, it sets the broad agreements that then uh, other people operate against. That's what the UN does on human rights. It does that on, on women's issues. It does that on a whole series of global uh, issues that move beyond national borders. And another very good example of this is, of course, climate change. It was the original U.N. agreement on climate change that was framed in Rio 20 years ago. Now part of the implementation of that is the energy initiative announced here in Rio. Uh, What's that? That's the Sustainable Energy for All initiative. You know, obviously climate is energy, energy is climate. They are the same thing. And uh, if you don't have a sustainable energy pattern, you certainly aren't able to solve your climate problem. And we think that this new alliance on energy is going to be an example of really how to make one of these major partnerships really go. And it's already moving with commitments from more than 50 governments, hundreds of billions of dollars of financial commitment. It's a pretty remarkable beginning.
1: So if I read you correctly, it sounds to me that you're giving a greater role to corporations in terms of addressing the world's environmental and uh, developmental problems.
2: Corporations have a major role to play. It has to be a partnership between governments, governments, making sure that the right rules are being set, non-governmental organizations, which tend to have the most yeasty ideas and sense of the future, and corporations, which are the most efficient institutions.
1: You sound very optimistic, actually. I, the stuff I've been reading from Rio uh, would suggest otherwise, but you actually sound well,
2: People are upbeat. depressed about Rio because they expect that one negotiated document is going to solve the problems. And that's a very naive view, I think. And it's also... Uh, You know, the U.N. is changing dramatically. Just look at the makeup of the power at the U.N. It used to be the United States, Europe, Japan, and maybe Russia that were making all the decisions. And now you have the emergence of Brazil, India, uh, South Africa, Mexico, major countries with major voices, and they think differently about the world, and they're making their thoughts felt. Of course there are people who are resisting that. There are people in the traditional north who don't like that to happen. People are always averse to change. But if you don't respect and understand change, you're doomed to failure. Well, Senator Tim Wirth, thank you so very much. Thank you.
1: Talking to us from Rio, that's Tim Wirth, President of the UN Foundation. Just ahead, fracking for natural gas is booming, and a new drilling technology is potentially kabooming. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. About a quarter of the natural gas produced in the United States comes from the drilling process known as hydraulic fracturing, or fracking. That's a lot of gas, and it takes a lot of water to extract it from the shale formations found deep in the ground. A lot of water. For example, it takes anywhere from 2 to 8 million gallons of water to open a single well in the Marcellus Shell, in the gas-rich Appalachian Basin. That's where a Canadian company called Gas Frack comes in. It's developed a fracking technique that eliminates the need for all that water. But as the Allegheny Front's Matt Richman reports, the technology is proving to be a hard sell.
7: We're at a well pad in Susquehanna County. This is the TEDx pad. It's
1: Cabot Oil and We're Gas Cabot folks from
6: George oil. Stark. Behind him, a drilling rig slowly digs down into the rock, surrounding the rig of trailers for the workers, the diesel generators that run all day and all night, and stacks and stacks of metal pipes. Each casing
2: is lowered down in varying degrees. So you're first at the surface. We use what's called conductor casing. That's
6: the drilling rig will grind down about 9,000 feet into the rock and then about 3,500 feet horizontally. During the vertical drilling, cement will be poured around the pipes. This is to prevent the well from leaking.
1: Casing and cementing are by far the the critical pieces to do up
2: front to ensure that you're protecting the ground water going through. This
6: rig will be here as many as 20 days for each well. Then it's packed up and shipped off, and another company comes in to hydraulically fracture the well. The amount of water used in a hydraulically fractured well is staggering as much as 8 million gallons for a single well in the Marcellus Shale. The water that comes back out of the well poses other threats. Open storage ponds can leak, and improperly treated wastewater can contaminate drinking water supplies. Now a Canadian company called Gas has begun fracturing wells without all that water. It's using propane. Last year, the company performed more than 500 waterless fractures in North America, almost four times as many as in 2009. GasFrac spokesman Kyle Ward says the company fracked its first well just four years ago, and it takes time for companies to switch over to a new technology.
7: But if they start seeing the production value and that they can make actually more money, then that's when their ears perk up, and that's what we're starting to see.
6: According to Ward, using propane instead of water to fracture well eliminates many of the threats to groundwater millions of gallons of flowback water are eliminated, and propane doesn't dissolve the salt or naturally occurring radioactive materials that are already in the rock. Ward says only four ingredients besides propane are sent down the well, and all of them are organic.
7: So what we're doing is basically once we're done, there's nothing in the hole except sand. I mean, everything is gone
6: the 100 to 150,000 gallons of propane used to fracture the well comes back up with the natural gas and can be sold or reused. But the switch to propane is no sure bet. First of all, it's not clear how effective propane is. That's because companies already using the technique keep any increased production a secret for the competitive advantage. Companies will move away from using water if propane is proven to be more profitable. David Yoxheimer is a hydrogeologist with Penn State's Marcellus Center for Outreach and Research. He says the cost of water usage and disposal could propel the switch.
7: You know, it ranges from you know, roughly 5 to 10 percent of the cost of a well. So that could be anywhere from 200000 to maybe upwards of maybe even a million dollars in some cases for a bigger well.
6: Yoxheimer says propane may be more useful in areas with what's known as wet gas like in western Pennsylvania, where there's already more propane in the reservoir. But water is better suited for deeper shales. That's because it takes high pressure to fracture a well. With water, it is easier to create the pressure needed to open up the spaces that allow gas to travel out of the rock. Derek Ellsworth, another researcher at Penn State, agrees. He compares opening a fracture to blowing up a balloon. And using propane is like blowing up the balloon with air
7: as you pump it into the balloon. Certainly the balloon gets larger, but it doesn't get larger as quickly as if you're filling a balloon with water.
6: Ellsworth says propane might not be the best substitute for water. He says other gases, like nitrogen or CO2, would be cheaper and may work just as well. Nitrogen is basically air, not hard to find, and pumping CO2 into the ground is better than releasing it into the atmosphere, says Ellsworth.
7: Having large amounts of CO2 available that could be utilized in some way with portions of it maybe sequestered in these shale reservoirs by sorption has some, some attractiveness to it.
6: Everybody agrees that more research on propane or LPG fracking is needed. Nadia Steinzor of the Oil and Gas Accountability Project says the risks of working with a highly explosive gas at high pressure should give everyone pause.
8: Every time there's a new technology that could get more gas out of the ground and get it online, It's um, a lot of people get really excited about it. But just because LPG is new, and it's different, and it doesn't use water, doesn't make it safe.
6: Gas Frack Company spokesman Kyle Ward says that since an explosion last year at a well in Canada, the company shut down operations and increased safety precautions, and they seem to have recovered. They've expanded operations into Texas and fracked test wells recently in Ohio's Utica Shale. And in the end, the company's growth may be the best way to gauge whether or not its technology works. For Living
1: on Earth, I'm Matt Richmond. Matt Richmond's story on fracking with propane comes to us by way of the Pennsylvania public radio program, The Allegheny Front. (music) Dengue fever is known as breakbone fever, That's because the disease transmitted by mosquitoes causes intense joint pain and suffering. Worldwide, it's estimated as many as 100 million people a year are infected with dengue, and the rate has increased 30-fold in just 50 years. There's no vaccine and no treatment. We're losing the war against dengue, but there is a new weapon in the works. It's a genetically modified mosquito that's designed to self-destruct within a generation. Officials in Key West are hoping to enlist the new mosquito in their fight against dengue, but first they need permission from regulators. Michael Doyle is executive director of the Florida Keys Mosquito Control District.
7: The last time there was really active transmission in the United States, in Florida particular, was uh, the mid-30s. And um, it was pretty much eradicated through mosquito control and, and uh, hasn't been here since. And then in 2009 we started getting confirmed cases of it in Key West proper, which was a big surprise in the United States for for many people.
1: So the last case of dengue was a a few years back, right?
7: Yes. November 2010 was the last official case that we know of. When dengue arrived, we realized that we had to reduce these mosquito numbers in mass in order to prevent any further transmission and keep Key West as safe as it always has been. And so... We hired about eight full-time people in addition to the two we had, and those folks have been going door-to-door, literally, ever since. There's 8,000 properties in Key West, and um, and our inspectors try to get to every one of those once a month to six weeks and to dump out containers and treat with low-toxicity insecticides.
1: sounds very expensive.
7: It's very. It's, a, it's about a million dollars plus. We're now doing aerial treatments using the same a bacterial product called BTI, and spraying it from a helicopter over the entirety of Key West uh, right now once a week, that seems to be affected, but again, is very expensive.
1: So now there's this company called Oxitec, which is based in England, and they have a new technology that uses uh, genes, actually. They treat the male uh, mosquito mm-hmm. with, with a gene, and mm-hmm. I understand that you're considering using it.
7: Yes, yes, and the solution is based on some really good successes in the agricultural world, there's been people working on this thing called the sterile insect technique, which essentially means you sterilize millions of male insects of whatever species—Mediterranean fruit fly, or screw worm, or um, anything else—and you flood the environment with these sterile males. They mate with the wild females, and you and the offspring either don't happen at all, or or they die, you know, before they become adults and, and pests.
1: So you got birth control for male mosquitoes.
7: That's, that's exactly right, and it's been amazingly effective.
1: In terms of Oxitec's uh, technology, this gene technology, um, how much would that cost you?
7: The technology that uh, Oxitec is offering, which essentially would be us buying mosquito eggs from them, and then we would rear them and release the, these genetically modified males, uh, we're told between two hundred and two hundred fifty thousand and 250000 a year. And if the promises are true, then, um, then we would have better control for, for less money. So
1: who has to approve the use of this new technology, this new gene technology in Florida?
7: Hence the problem. Mosquitoes are not an agricultural insect. They're a public health insect. And so the USDA, unfortunately, we get a letter from them saying it's not in their jurisdiction so we were very disappointed, very, very disappointed that they weren't taking that on and um, and handed this off to either EPA or CDC or, or um, FDA. CDC is not a regulatory agency, so they're, they're not really a possibility. None are required to take it on. It's not in their jurisdiction. So it's essentially fallen between the cracks.
1: Well, in the absence of a regulator, couldn't the Florida Keys Mosquito Control District meaning you and the other people on the board, uh, just decide to, hey, let's just do this. Let's use this new technology.
7: (laughs) Well, technically, I guess you could. I mean, if we decided that using high-powered squirt guns and squirting mosquitoes with water would solve our problem, we could go out and do that without a permit, and very few people would, would have a problem with it. But the fact that the word genetically modified is connected with the whole process that conjures up um, some scenarios in many people's minds that you know that are that are have serious consequences.
1: Yeah, the imagination doesn't have to run too far wild. I'm thinking of the movie Mothra. You know, it's
7: you know, they... or Jurassic Park, which was mentioned in a recent uh, city commission meeting. That someone came up and said this could be just like Jurassic Park. You know, Mother Nature will find a way. What potential impacts could there be in the environment or on? Uh, on human health, if one of these mosquitoes bit someone or something of that nature. And those are real questions that need to be answered with real facts. And uh, unfortunately, we have no one to look at the facts for us.
1: Well, we're going to speak to OxyTech's chief scientific officer, and we'll put those questions to him.
7: That would be that'd be tremendous.
1: Michael Doyle is the executive director of the Mosquito Control District Office in Key West, Florida. Well, for answers, we now turn to Luke Alfie. He's chief scientific officer with OxyTech. That's the company making the new genetically modified mosquitoes.
10: It's very safe. We, of course, have dealt with independent regulatory authorities in a number of different countries who have each analyzed our technology prior to any kind of field use, or indeed in many cases prior to laboratory use. And they have concluded that it is as safe as one could reasonably hope for.
1: So I know that you've released these in Brazil, and came in Cayman, uh, Malaysia, right? That's right. The regulatory agencies there have given their seal of approval to do field experiments?
10: Yes, precisely. Of course, we each of those trials are with collaborators in the country, usually with the governments of those countries. In each case, those field experiments were preceded by risk analysis, but also after the fact, they have shown that our mosquitoes did exactly what we anticipated they would. In the Cayman Islands, for example, we showed that they would mate wild females, which is what it's supposed to do. And then when we stop releasing them, it all went away, as expected from the environment. This gene has, of course, a very strong selective disadvantage, like death or sterility. Uh, And so it disappears from the environment very quickly if you stop releasing those mosquitoes.
1: So no unexpected accidents? Uh, You you didn't have females, for example, pick up this gene and then go out and spread this gene, biting people?
10: Right, well, nothing, nothing picks up the gene, but of course... When you're separating males from females, that is not 100% accurate. And so in practice, we release about one... In the Cayman Islands experiment, we released about one female per 3,000 males. So an extraordinarily low number of females. But both the males and the females are just like regular wild mosquitoes, except for having this gene that will kill their offspring.
1: So in the case of Cayman, you had uh, 3,000 males... That were genetically modified to one female but you released three million mosquitoes so you had like a, a thousand genetically modified females uh if one of those were to bite me what would
10: happen uh, you would be bitten by a mosquito what normally happens when you're bitten by a mosquito for many people you wouldn't notice at all particularly for this mosquito which is not a not a very aggressive biting mosquito some people would have a small reaction to mosquito bite and this mosquito is much like any other. Now, remember those were released over the period of six months. So the, you know, the per week, per whatever addition of females was very low. Some of the numbers get a bit intimidating with this kind of approach as we talk about releasing millions of mosquitoes. But to give you one sort of analogy, we, we produced the eggs in Oxford for that trial and shipped them out to the Cayman Islands and we shipped, I don't remember what it was, 30 million eggs or something like that And that really sounds like a lot, but it's probably half a coffee cup full of eggs for the entire trial.
1: But the numbers of mosquitoes that you're releasing, at least I I was reading uh, in Brazil and Malaysia, is a huge number compared to the native population, like 10 to 1.
10: Yeah, we aim to release about 10 engineered males for each wild male, so that most of the wild females most of the time will see and mate a sterile male rather than mating a, a wild male. Now
1: what happens if you have that rare male mosquito that does get the gene but doesn't express it the way you hope or want or intend, and their progeny becomes a, a super bug and goes on to be immune for later you know generations to your
10: gene? Right. So what we have put in to the mosquito is something that is bad for it. So if our gene was to be less effective or less active, it would just make the mosquito less weakened than it would otherwise have been that doesn't make it stronger than a normal one so just to be clear we don't put in antibiotic resistance genes or insecticide resistance genes or anything like that that might help the mosquito or anything that, that it comes into contact with
1: but aren't you putting selective pressure on the population by introducing this gene
10: anything you do to the population will put some kind of selective pressure on it so if you spray it with chemicals There is some pressure to develop resistance to those. If you if you went around and found all the breeding sites and filled them with concrete, then that would provide some selective pressure for the mosquitoes to use a wider range of breeding sites, and so you would get some possibility of resistance through a behavioural change. So I certainly wouldn't say that there is no possibility of evolving resistance to our approach or or any other approach to controlling the mosquitoes. But you know the fifty year history of sterile insect technique with billions and billions of irradiated, sterile male fruit flies, for example, being released every week, history would suggest that this approach is somewhat less susceptible to resistance than many other approaches.
1: Well, Mr. Alfie, thank you so much. Oh, Thanks a lot. Luke Alfie is Chief Scientific Officer with Oxitec. Check out our website for a new feature we call Living on Earth Now. Regular updates, new stories, and features. That's at LOE.org. There you'll find food for thought and a story about healthy school lunches. Coming up, a country that has so little garbage it needs to import it. Stay tuned to Living on Earth.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment. Supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman.
1: When it comes to recycling, Sweden is sensationally successful. Just four percent of household waste in Sweden goes into landfills. The rest winds up either recycled or used as fuel in waste-to-energy power plants. Burning the garbage in the incinerators generates 20 percent of Sweden's district heating and provides electricity for a quarter of a million homes. The problem is Sweden's waste recycling program is too successful. Katarina Ostlund is senior advisor for the Swedish EPA.
9: We don't have enough burnable waste within our own countries, so that's why we import waste from other countries. We have more capacity than the production of waste in Sweden, That that is suitable for incineration.
1: You've got an enviable problem there. You don't have enough trash.
9: It's not a problem. You can import some trash from the rest of Europe, because in the rest of Europe... You landfill quite a lot of trash, and I think they need uh, us to take care of their trash.
1: (laughs) So they've got more than enough trash, and you've got too little. (laughs) How much do you import right now?
9: It's about uh, 800,000 tons.
1: 800,000 tons? That's a lot of trash.
9: Well, yeah. But uh, in fact, we hope that in in the future, Europe will build their own plants so they can manage to take care of their own waste. And we need to find ways of reducing our own waste as well in the future. So, I mean, this is not a long-term solution, really, because we need to be better to reuse and recycle. But in the short perspective, I think it's quite a good solution.
7: What
1: countries? Where are you getting your, your uh, garbage now?
9: Some from Norway, and also I think there is some from Germany. most parts, it's from Norway right now.
1: But why doesn't Norway burn their own garbage?
9: They have incineration plants, but it's more expensive to burn it in Norway. It's cheaper for the Norwegian if they export the waste to Sweden. I think they will do in the near future that they will burn their garbage in their own facilities. And I hope that we instead will get the waste from Italy or from Romania or Bulgaria or the Baltic countries because they landfill a lot in these countries. They don't have any incineration plants or recycling plants. So they need to find a solution for their waste.
1: So, Ms. Oslin, I got to ask you, who pays who? I mean, they've got the (laughs) trash that they want to get rid of and you've got the trash that you want. Do you have to buy it from Europe?
9: Uh, we get paid. We get money from taking the trash to Sweden, and also uh, we get money while um, selling it, electricity and heat. So it's quite a good business, in fact. But, of course, you have dikes in the ashes, so that's a problem, what to do with the ashes.
1: Dioxin, you're saying?
9: Yeah, dioxin. And also you have heavy metals, but you get the dioxins and the heavy metals uh, captured within the ash and then you need to landfill the ash and in fact we export ashes to Norway. <laughs> That's the way it is.
1: It sounds really strange. Norway sends their garbage to you. They yeah. pay you to take it off your hands. You yeah. turn it into energy. Uh, yeah. get to you know power your society and then you send the waste product back to, to Norway.
9: Yeah. yeah, they aren't so happy with that. <laughs>
1: Well, since Sweden is so good at this, why don't you just export your technology so other countries don't have to export their waste to you?
9: I would say we do this, but Sweden has a different situation since we need the heat from the waste. You know, in Italy, maybe they don't need a heat for heating. They just want the electricity. And when you use both heat and electricity, you get a much higher efficiency on your plants. So that's why we have the world's best uh, incineration plants concerning energy efficiency. But I would say maybe in the future, this waste will be valued even more. So maybe you could sell your waste because (laughs) there will be a shortage of resources within the world. So, I mean, the waste will be more and more valuable.
1: Well, that's an interesting take. Waste is a rare energy resource.
9: Yeah, I would say it is. It could be. Yeah, it will be. I'm sure it will be.
1: Well, Ms. Aslund, thank you so very much.
9: Thank you very much.
1: That's Katarina Aslund, Senior Advisor for the Swedish Environmental Protection Agency. just a few weeks, it's off to the races as the London Olympics get underway. It's an international showcase featuring the world's fastest athletes. Too bad falcons can't compete because they'd win wings down. Ari Daniel Shapiro has the tale of the fastest falcon of all. He found it on San Juan Island in Washington State. His story comes to us by way of the IEEE Spectrum magazine special, Fastest on Earth.
8: Then Franklin reaches into his kitchen freezer. Right next to the strawberries...
3: Uh, Here she is.
8: ...is Frightful, a frozen peregrine falcon. Franklin takes Frightful out of a plastic bag. She's still uh, beautifully preserved. Franklin strokes her feathers. He loves this bird. You see, Franklin helped Frightful achieve a staggering speed record. So they've got history.
3: You know, We raised Frightful from an egg, and she had full liberty to fly, but of course she chose to stay right here.
8: Frightful imprinted on Franklin and his wife Suzanne, meaning that the bird considered them her parents. Once she was old enough, they worked with her on flying exercises, just as they do with all the falcons they raise. These birds are fast. It's
3: really amazing to uh, have a falcon go up to a couple thousand feet out of sight. You kind of think, well, that's the end of that. And about fifteen minutes later, it sounds like ripping canvas, and some bird on its completely free
8: comes back to your, you know, land on your glove. There was something special about Frightful, though. Even for a falcon, she was driven. She was the first chick to stand up, the first to eat on her own. She was faster than the other falcons, and Franklin wanted to know just how fast. So he and Frightful began taking trips into the air together. They'd ride up to 7,000 feet in a skydiving plane. Franklin would release Frightful from the plane, and then he'd leap out. The two would rendezvous in the air, and Franklin would let go of a weighted lure. The lure would plunge towards the earth at 150 miles an hour, and Frightful would catch it effortlessly on wing.
3: Then we started working on going faster to a point where we could build a lure that would— approximate between 160 and 180 miles per hour.
8: Frightful easily caught the new lure. Franklin wanted to push her further, but he worried that a heavier lure might hurt Frightful as she caught it in freefall. So he got inventive.
3: So then I, as a skydiver, started becoming the lure. She would chase me to higher and
8: higher speeds. Franklin would leap from the aircraft and just cannonball through the air.
3: I would hyper-streamline from a higher altitude, and then Frightful would follow me. Um, We were able to take her higher up to uh, 17,000 feet, and at that point, she clocked at 242 miles per hour. She never left my side. She was there the whole time.
8: 242 miles an hour is the fastest recorded speed of any creature on the planet. And Franklin, locking eyes with Frightful while falling through the air, got to see how she did it.
3: In the 120 to 150-mile-an-hour range, she was kind of in a diamond shape. But as the speed range increased, pushing into the 200-mile-an-hour range, she seemed to elongate herself, and she gets very streamlined and long-looking. And I knew when I saw that, that I had seen what I wanted to see. That was how falcons go fast. That's how they transition.
8: All this training and flying forged a real bond between Frightful and the Franklins.
3: We could free-fall with her to 17,000 feet, and then she enjoyed coming in the house like one of our
8: children, watching Monday night
3: football. I mean, she would sit on the couch next to us.
8: Ken and Suzanne Franklin worked and lived with Frightful for 14 years. Then one day, they found her in here, on the floor of her aviary. They think she died of a stroke or a heart attack. Suzanne was so sad she couldn't talk about it for a year. Ken knows he's unlikely to ever work with an athlete like Frightful again. It's why they can't bring themselves to let her go.
3: She's actually in a pretty good streamlined position, the way, we, the way we froze her.
8: Her right set of talons is extended, as if she's about to catch one of those plummeting lures. And at least for now, Frightful's world record is secure. I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro.
1: Our story about Frightful the Falcon is from the IEEE Spectrum Magazine special, Fastest on Earth. The publication received the 2012 National Magazine Award for General Excellence. In Rudyard Kipling's classic, The Jungle Book, He tells the story of a mongoose in India named Rikki-Tikki-Tavi. The mongoose protects his human friends from murderous cobras. Well, Kipling's tale about a mongoose in India had a happy ending, but in Hawaii, it's a different story. Karen Gunderson is the project coordinator for the Kauai Invasive Species Committee. Karen, welcome to
5: Living on Earth. Thank you for having me.
1: You know, everything I know about mongoose is is from uh, Rudyard Kipling, you know, from his Jungle Book and, and writing about Rikki-Tikki-Tavi. They're really fierce fighters. They have remarkably fast reflexes, and they look a lot like a weasel.
5: And the interesting thing, though, that you may not know is that there are 33 species of mongoose.
1: Well, his came from India. Where did yours come from?
5: Well, it is the small Indian mongoose.
1: How did they get to Hawaii?
5: They actually, it's a funny story... Um, So back in the 1800s, sugarcane was growing as a major agricultural crop here and also in Jamaica. And one of the major pests to this growing, this agricultural crop, was rats. So someone in Jamaica, the the sugarcane industry, decided that it would be a great idea to introduce mongoose to battle these rats and take care of the problem. But meanwhile, after they were introduced to Jamaica, they were then introduced to Kauai from Jamaica for the same, exactly the same reasons. Apparently somebody didn't do their homework really great because they didn't turn out to be that effective. And this is why it didn't work. Rats are nocturnal and mongoose are diurnal, meaning they're active during the day. But the mongoose quickly found another uh, prey item, and that was uh, our native ground-nesting birds.
1: They came over 100 years ago to Hawaii. I guess they were on Oahu, they were on Molokai, and then Maui. How long have you had them on Kauai?
5: I can confirm that we've had them on Kauai since May 23rd (laughs) when we had a capture, but we actually had a sighting way as far back as 1968. So we, we really have no idea what the population base is here, but they are very elusive. And over 44 years of sporadic trapping, We've never been able to capture one until
1: May. So, is the mongoose a, a good swimmer? Because they've swum over from one of these other islands.
5: Oh, that's too far. They can swim, but they don't. They don't choose to really do that if they can help it. Um, but they probably came most likely as stowaways on cargo.
1: Well, I was looking at some statistics. It says that since the arrival of the Europeans to the Hawaiian Islands, the, the seventy-one out of one hundred and thirteen endemic species that existed at the time of the first human colonization, they're gone. And of the remaining 42, 32 are federally listed as endangered, and 10 of those have not been seen for for 40 years.
5: Yeah, I know that is such a sad story. And and Hawaii is often referred to as the extinction capital of the world. Um, Yeah, we are having a a huge loss in biodiversity. And, And one of those reasons is the introduction of mongoose.
1: I'm not sure if this is a really good idea or a really, really bad idea, but since you've got a predator there, why don't you get a predator for the predator? Why don't you get something that preys on the mongoose?
5: Hawaii is a very finely balanced ecosystem. You know, the, the native um, flora and fauna that developed here over millions of years did so in isolation. And so it's a very, the native species are, are what we call passive our mints have no scents and our raspberries have no thorns because they didn't um, have a predator. So anytime you introduce a predator to a passive ecosystem, it can wreak havoc in all kinds of ways to unintentional consequences.
1: Well, how, how have uh, Oahu and Maui, how have they dealt with the mongoose problem?
5: Well, the only way they can deal with it is actually to ramp up predator control In high value areas like bird refuges, sanctuaries, that sort of thing, where they can put up predator proof fences, like to prevent mongoose from going in and can, you know, active trapping in the areas.
1: Sounds expensive.
5: Very expensive. But, you know, a big issue is, is how this is going to continue to be funded. We are in a recession still and funding is very tight in all areas of conservation in Hawaii. So, I think we're going to have to look at creative ways to fund this project as we move forward. You know, we're just hanging on to preserving what we have here is very unique in Hawaii and Kauai.
1: Ms. Gunderson, what is that bird sound I hear behind you?
5: <laughs> um, I'm not sure. It could be a minor bird. It's probably it's not a native. <laughs> Whatever you're hearing is not a native bird.
1: <laughs> oh, Really? How do you know that?
5: Because the native birds have had to move to very high elevation to escape avian malaria. So uh, you only really find our native forest birds very high up.
1: Boy, Hawaii does have a lot of problems with its birds.
5: Yeah, we do. We, You know, we'll call them challenges. Uh, oh, that was a minor bird right there. <laughs> you know, we are battling invasive species on every front. You know, whether it's mongoose or little fire ant or, you know, watershed-destroying weeds you know it's it's an ongoing battle.
1: Well, Ms Gunderson, thanks so very much.
5: Oh, you're welcome. I'm really happy to um chat with you today.
1: Sounds great. Sounds like beautiful. I bet it smells terrific right where you are actually.
5: We are tucked up right next to the mountains and it is unbelievably gorgeous. It's paradise.
1: Except for the mongoose.
5: <laughs> Even with the mongoose, it's still you can't take the paradise out of Hawaii. <laughs>
1: Karen Gunderson is project coordinator for the Kauai Invasive Species Committee. On the next Living on Earth, there's never been a better time to grab some rays.
6: Right now, there are great incentives. Certainly at the federal level, there's tax credits. There are here um, locally in Massachusetts. The cost of
1: installing solar has also dramatically come down. Better hurry before the sun sets on those solar tax breaks and incentives. Next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week amid a mist. fine droplets floating from a waterfall. The Akaka Falls on the east coast of the Big Island of Hawaii get all the attention. They plunge more than 400 feet into a gorge. But follow a narrow path through the jungle, and you'll find a much smaller cascade feeding a stream beneath a wooden bridge. Toby Mountain recorded its soothing sounds for his CD, A Week in Hawaii. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Eileen Balinski, Jessica Leese Kern, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jeff Young, and Ike Shreeskandaraja. With help from Megan Miner, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza. And we welcome Christy Pereira. She joins our interns, Annabelle Ford and Annie Sneed. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurstein composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And don't forget our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And you can follow us on Twitter at Living on Earth. That's just one word. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening.
4: Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to just eat organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and PAX World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. PAX World, for tomorrow. PRI Public Radio International